and welcome to the Dead Darlings podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney. I'm Laurie Eaves. And I'm Hannah Hutzpah. Dead Darlings is a monthly podcast for the spoken word community. Each month we'll be bringing you interviews, tips, inspiration and above all, awesome poetry from the spoken word scene. We'll also be telling you what's on and where you can submit your work. This month we'll be interviewing Anthony and Aksaguru live from LA. Well, maybe not live, but he, he did call in from LA. He was in LA when we spoke to him. You can hear what he sounds like when he's in LA on this podcast. Exactly. That's almost <laughs> the same thing. I mean, it sounds really impressive to say that our guest is joining us from LA this, this week. His, his little picture, as we recorded this, had lots of sun in the background. So we knew it was really it LA. I mean, in fairness, we're coming to you from the back end of a heat wave. So actually, that's been true in the UK as well. Yeah, that's still. fair. It's absolutely true. <laughs> yeah. He did look convincingly like he was in LA, so... Yeah, I mean, either that or these <laughs> Zoom backgrounds have got incredibly advanced. And we'll be giving you a sneak preview of our book review episode where we'll be chatting about All the Men I Never Married by Kim Moore. That will be out later in the month. But first, what have you guys been up to since our last episode? Anything interesting? <laughs> Anything at I all? I feel like um... this isn't going to be a poetry conversation, is it, Rebecca? I mean, I've been to a couple of poetry events, but uh, no, this is an hour lives conversation, or more specifically, your lives. I don't know, two of my best friends got married in the last couple of months. How about you guys? I, when you say that two of your friends got married, you mean both me and Hannah, but also that both me and Hannah did not marry each other. We, we married oh, no. separate people. Hannah's confused this slightly by marrying a lorry, <laughs> but not me. Other lorries are available. Other lorries are available. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I am no longer living in sin, so I feel <laughs> relieved. The good Lord is not coming to smite you. I mean, well, not for that reason, anywho. Yeah, I, I don't know about you, Laurie Eves, but the, the picking readings, no fucking pressure. Oh, God. Oh, You're a yeah. poet. What's the <laughs> best poem for the biggest audience? Oh, my God. This is a good subject for a discussion at the beginning of dead darling's podcast <laughs> reading poetry readings i think you had a poem that was read by a quite young person at your wedding didn't you oh gosh yeah we had we had a little quote i oh gosh who the hell is it by that's the point yeah we had a a i cannot remember how old she is i think seven i might be overestimating we had one one of my other halves not godchildren but one of one of their beloved kiddos who is very good at reading and apparently practiced with like all her stuffed animals laid out on her bed as an audience Cute. practiced oh. a reading that was was the effect of your my opinion we're all a bit weird and when you find someone that you can sort of ha be fall in mutual weirdness with and we call it love or something uh -huh. slightly to that effect i cannot remember it's an it, I can't remember the exact wording, but it seemed very appropriate. And we also had the the first one that came to my mind, and I feel like part of me feels like I should have like been doing more homework about this, but I was a bit busy with all the other stuff. But what, one of the first poems to my mind was by the poet Sophia Blackwell, and it's called Proposal. Mm -hmm. And so we had that yeah. in our ceremony. We had a, another poet, Robin Gurney, read that, and it was kind of about, about looking that far ahead, <laughs> the good and the bad and the... The books dogged and the doctors harried. How would you like all those burdens carried? It it was, mm. and also Sophia Blackwell has a, I am I'm sure is thoroughly embarrassed and fed up with me saying so at this point. But her and Tim Clare both were the two poets who, I wasn't just like oh that this shit's good I like it, but it was like 
I want to do that. I want to be yeah. them. So that that seemed appropriate. That it, it just came to me pretty quickly, and I was like, right, done, brilliant. Yep, that one. Yeah. Whereas you, Laurie, had a very convenient and wonderful literary option available to you. We did. Yeah, we well, we had two readings. One was a poem by Mary Oliver called Don't Hesitate, which Hannah Gordon read very well, which was lovely. But the other one, which was a bit more, I don't actually think that left field, but just a bit of a weird one, was we had a reading, and this wasn't poetry, from Little Women by Louisa May Alcott, which we were, I'm sure Hannah went through this process as well with her Laurie. You know, it's quite difficult, especially when you're people who write picking picking mm-hmm. a good piece for your wedding and then eventually we're like oh what books do we both like and little women was one that we myself and my partner my wife amy both read together last year and as very literary minded listeners will know within the book there is a couple who get married called laurie and amy so it just seemed super fitting to have a reading about about Laurie and Amy's proposal from the book and afterwards quite a few the more literary people were like oh yeah great got it oh I see what they did there they chose chose Laurie and Amy and the people who were not literary were like did they change the names I've never read this book but it seems super weird that there would be a Laurie and an Amy who fall in love in this book my our friend Steph was convinced that we had changed the names and was telling everybody that we had done so. We didn't change any names. That would be super <laughs> weird. It would Just be like, super weird. Like, insert yourself into an adventure, like one of those kids' books, but at your I know. wedding. Like that. Yeah, exactly. Choose your own adventure <laughs> book. No, what they called Goosebumps yeah. had one of those. Give you yeah, an adventure. No, but yeah, we picked a section from Little Women, which was lovely. I think it was lovely anyway. I liked it. I don't know what you guys <laughs> thought, but I liked it. It was. It was a very lovely moment. Both of your weddings, lovely, lovely ceremonies. And Rebecca I will say, I'll say which was better no please don't do that we we don't want to do that i I mean i think they were wonderfully gloriously different and in the ways you guys are wonderfully gloriously different and that was fucking perfect that's everything a wedding should be but they both made me cry if that makes you feel better yeah. That does make us feel, both feel better. <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah, there we yeah. go. There we go. Yeah, I, like I kind of the, the thing is like so. One of the rules in the UK is if you're going to get married somewhere that isn't a church or a religious venue, you cannot mm. have the word God no. in in any of your readings. So, like, my mum mm. wanted the the readings from the prophet. I've forgotten the name of the poet. My mum wanted that, and I was like, "It's got God in it." She's like, "Could you change it?" No. No, I'm not going to change other people's poetry to take God out. It's fucking weird. Uh-huh. And trying to find stuff that is not completely saccharine as well. There uh-huh. is some stuff that is just like a fucking Hallmark gift card yeah. broke into the sugar cupboard and just like, uh-huh. it's grim. Yeah. Yeah, no, you've got, you kind of, I mean, there's obviously loads of lists online of like, this would make a great mm, poem for your wedding. But there's a sense of like, these are poems for people who don't read poetry. Like, mm. I want, I want something mm. that is like for people who read poetry. And I think both our readings in the end were intentionally. I mean, "Don't Hesitate" is not explicitly a love poem. It's more a poem about nice things happening. And I think that was part of what we, why we chose that poem. So yeah. It's not explicitly yeah. lovey-dovey. It's just like, isn't life great sometimes? <laughs> I can't remember the exact turn of phrase, so I'm going to mangle it, but the, like, you're not going to make anything better by trying to not enjoy this because someone else is having a crap time. Like, just just good things are good. You're allowed to enjoy them. Yeah, or like, yeah. Hannah, you choosing that Sophia one. That's a really nice one because you've chosen it because you like Sophia's work and that 
that that Sophia was an important poet for you. That's a really mm. good reason for choosing that reading rather than you know something sappy and saccharine that's like on one of the, the top mm. of one of those lists. Like or even like um, I've perfectly researched the one that perfectly encapsulates my intended mm. meaning. But like this is a poem yeah. about looking that far in the future from yeah no this one just kind of worked and kind of fell into my lap in some ways yeah um, exactly i then had the opportunity to tell, tell sophia blackwell like not that long before the wedding she was at the yeah gig i was at and she had a look in her eye which wasn't like terrified but it wasn't also the oh i'm so delighted that i was hoping for yeah. i suspect it's there like, was a level oh, of like gosh, oh this fangirling is not stopping <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think if you write a weddingy proposally poem, like yeah. you are putting it out into the world in the expectation yeah. that someone's going to use it, because I think that's that's a really interesting point about that. That actually, this is one of the few times in kind of everyday life where you come into contact with poetry where you might expect funerals, right? Yeah, and if you're not into poems, like my mum had a bit of a thing before our wedding about that I couldn't go down the aisle to a pop song. And she got very worried about this. And it turned out pop song was anything that wasn't classical music. Now, I right. was not raised on a diet of classical music. No, exactly. So oh. I fucking panic because like, like, what do I like? What, what's going to work? What am I going to enjoy? What's going to satisfy her? And I imagine if you're not into poetry, you have that same level of, ah, fuck, what do we do? Yeah, exactly. What will fit the yeah. bill? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I wrote one for not the ceremony, but for the reception that I read. And like, similarly, like, writing something okay. knowing that you're going to that you're going to read it at your wedding like mm. is like mm. knowing how to approach that was like very challenging or deciding how you want to approach that is very challenging because you know like any sort of commissioned thing it's like okay I'm writing for an occasion and that puts a you know it puts a yeah. pressure it can put a, put a pressure mm. on it where you're like I need to find the thing that says exactly how I feel about this other person and that's yeah. And that isn't necessarily how you would approach a poem normally, right? You would never approach a poem going, this poem no. must say everything about this no. subject. Because actually the exactly. best poems don't say everything. They say a little thing. So yeah, yeah, then trying to just be like, oh, this must be everything. Is, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I wrote, I wrote. I mean, the, the one I ended up doing, I was very happy with and wasn't really, it was much more like, this is just a nice little love poem that I've written, you know, my partner being happy. But like, there was some awful, awful drafts of uh, like other attempts at, I've got to write a poem for this wedding, like that, which is garbage, like that you would never want to hear because that pressure was was feeding into the poems, and that's mm. not good. You mm. don't want that. So, um, can confirm the poem was the point where I got a bit misty eyed, and it was lovely. Oh, that's very cute. And then my wife, we went to another wedding a couple of weeks later. My wife was doing a reading and read a Hero Lindsay Bird poem, which was fun. Which one? I know, right? So she ended up having to do an extract from a poem called Pyramid Scheme, which is in the pamphlet, Pamper Me to Hell and Back. And it was like, I can do this section of the poem, which is like <laughs> sweet, but I can't do the first half of the poem, which is actually about a pyramid scheme and is actually like just not relevant and also, you know, quite like just not the most happy thing in the world. Because like all of Hero Lindsay Bird's poems, there's like, yeah. this is the bit about love and then boing it's off yeah, on I've gone off somewhere else and it's a bit dark <laughs> and weird and probably and involves sex or weeing or something a lot of sex yeah mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So, which uh, I, I think I struggled with when trying to pick a poem for my wedding because most of my favourite love poems are bittersweet 
Mm-hmm. Like mm. I would have loved to have done Sarah and Phil Kay's When Love Arrives. Like it's a two-hander, be very nice. But actually one of the lines in it is maybe the next time you see love is after the divorce. Yeah. Which at your first wedding and hopefully yeah. only, you know, yeah. is it it's a bit Exactly. Of a you've got the love poem, you got the love poem that's that's actually a downer poem. You've got like oh my god, we watched something, what was it? Some like Disney Princess Weddings thing is on Disney Plus, and some couple chose "I Will Always Love You," the Whitney, the Whitney Houston Dolly Parton song. And it's like that is a breakup song. That is not a marriage song. Oh my god! If you think that's wait, a wait, they chose song, it as a song, not someone reading out the lyrics. They chose it as a song for their for their like, wedding fuck, because someone like, just like just reading out is... "I Will Always Love You." does not have half the impact of like no, holding but, that but note the, for a year. But I will always love you but is still. a is a breakup. Like it's not yeah. it's not a love song. So you've got the one that's a breakup. You've got the one that's like funny but it's kind of mean that you want to avoid because you don't actually want to be like mean about the other person. Like so you need to avoid that. Like the one that's a bit sort of edgy. Like you've got the ones that are just you too don't want to be too sexy in front of grandma. Too sexy, yeah. In front of you, like oh, like you read these Harold Lindsay Bird ones, for example, and you're like, oh, this really gets it. Until suddenly, there's just like, and then we fucked in the bushes. Like, <laughs> and, you know, I can't read that at the wedding. Like, so oh, yeah, it's gosh. actually a really difficult task choosing some, choosing other people's words that are right. And I think that's that's the wedding everything encapsulated, right? Is that you're suddenly <laughs> thinking about everything from so many angles you would not normally. If it was your birthday, you would go, I like that dress, yes. Or if it was, what cake do you want to order? You would just be like, mm, tasty, mm. that one. Like just, But just everything expands in so many different directions and then what other people might think of it too. I always assume people who got stressed about weddings were getting like really uptight about like like chair covers and shit that doesn't really matter and I didn't realize that it's just anxiety about everyone in your life and every decision you are making and what they might think of them and and how to tessellate mm. all the but that's probably another topic for another day. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have very strong opinions about how Bridezilla is just another way to call a woman a bitch, frankly. Yep. But yes. So, cool. speaking of hopping around and, you know, <laughs> different subjects. So yes, our, our, our <laughs> month is... We'll be moving on to our interview and you will see why that is relevant soon, listeners. Um, because spoilers, we did the interview first. But yeah, I think, yeah. So apologies for the lack of poetry gig content this month, guys. But there is amusing on the nature of poems in public life. Enjoy. Yeah. We still had we still had a poetry full month or poetry we full few did. months because yeah hard hard for poets to get married without poetry I think absolutely <laughs> let's do an interview this month's interview is with Anthony Anaxaguru Anthony Anaxaguru is a British-born Cypriot poet fiction writer essayist publisher and poetry educator his poetry has been published in Poetry the Poetry Review Poetry London the New Statesman Granta and elsewhere. His work has also appeared on BBC Newsnight, BBC Radio 4, ITV, Vice UK, Channel 4 and Sky Arts. His second collection, After the Formalities, published with Penned in the Margins, is a Poetry Book Society recommendation and was shortlisted for the 2019 T.S. Eliot Prize, along with the 2021 Ledbury Month Poetry Prize for second collections. It was also a Telegraph and Guardian Poetry Book of the Year. 
In 2020, he published How to Write It with Murky Books, a practical guide fused with tips and memoirs looking at the politics of writing as well as the craft of poetry and fiction along with the wider publishing industry. He was awarded the 2019 H-100 Award for Writing and Publishing and the 2015 Groucho Maverick Award for his poetry and fiction. In 2019, he was made an Honorary Fellow of the University of Roehampton. Anthony is Artistic Director of Outspoken, a monthly poetry and music night held at London's Southbank Centre and publisher of Outspoken Press. His forthcoming poetry collection, Heritage Aesthetics, will be published by Granter in 2022. Anthony, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, brilliant. So uh, we would like to ask our guests to kick us off with a poem so our listeners can hear a bit about sort of, you know, what they're about, what their work is like. So, yeah. Uh, would you share a poem with our listeners? Yeah, sure. So this is a poem from the forthcoming book, Heritage Aesthetics. Um, uh, it's, I'm going to start with a poem called End Game um, for jokes, really. Um, <laughs> so it goes um, End Game. At the close of capitalism, catch the professor and I waving our big flags at the parade, our haircuts inspired by Bart's coinage, gusts of life, seniors leaning out of windows, their imminent deaths a thing of the past. That's me in the corner, suffering conclusions. That's me itching to sing my killers to sleep, leaving them supine in a retro spa, all together now, as if we were smuggling winter into Dartmoor, as if this were a collective effort to find the oath I buried inside a chapel organ. The professor read how my mother thought to smother the hour I was born in. You're right, I'm reaching beyond the pablum for a straw man to leave my plasma on. Muscled colonies, so saccharine I could die. Altogether now, as if we were the study of a pale body tanning in unison. It's not life we want more of, it's beauty. These days you can watch the world soften in high definition. Watch a man fire into a crowd until the man becomes a government. My grandmother dug up the last of her savings, then went on to fill her purse. The cicadas are screaming to know why their singular music moves me to the point of vapour. The professor believes the future is undergoing its final autopsy. Isn't that why the highest grossing movies always contain some kind of high speed chase and why most conversations between strangers begin with the mention of weather, which in itself is a kind of light. Mm -hmm. Nice. (laughs) Thank you very much. Always. So, We always like to kick off our uh, interviews by asking people how they first got into poetry. Hmm. Um, I think I think most people. I mean, that question for me is like, at what point did you notice a poem? Really, Hmm. is what that Hmm. question is asking. Hmm. When when did you start noticing poetry? Uh, And I didn't actually start noticing poetry till I was kind of in my teens. But I think I took an interest in language from music i think that's everyone's kind of gateway is you learn nursery rhymes mm-hmm. and then you learn you know song lyrics <clears throat> and i grew up in a house that had a lot of music playing but my mum would play music constantly in the background um and i took an interest in language or language-based art in from i think from the moment you know from six or seven years old maybe even younger mm-hmm. just asking and my earliest memory actually is asking her what 
Paul Simon meant when he said, hello, darkness, my old friend, I've come to talk with you again. <laughs> um, and I, I just, I, rem- I have a really like lucid imprint of that moment of hearing it in her car and then just having been stopped by the thought and then trying to work out who the darkness was and what it was referencing because it just wasn't, it didn't make sense to my kind of five, six-year-old mind. I couldn't also speak English till I was six as well. So coming into this kind of later on was a little bit different because I think that when you learn English as a second language, which I I was raised by my grandma um, who spoke Cypriot Greek and then having to learn English to get into school uh, once I started Mm. primary school, um, basically meant you pay attention to words in a way that you might not when English is your first, your primary language. Whereas if you're kind of straddling two language forms, then yeah, I guess. And I just remember asking her what that meant. It just really struck me. And then her explaining that darkness meant sadness. And I was like, oh yeah, I can see that. I could, I remember thinking I can see how he, he did that. And, and then it all kind of made sense. And I just became really obsessed with like, saying one thing but meaning something else you know um mm. i think that's probably where it began so what does he mean when he says you can call me owl that's that's what i really want to know <laughs> oh you can call me owl is actually um <laughs> well i mean the, the good thing about you can call me owl is that he starts each one of those um verses with a joke a man walks uh-huh. down the street he says why am i soft in the middle why am i soft when the rest of my life is so hard so they're all jokes um and I think it's, I mean, he's done a, there's a documentary that I watched on Paul Simon where he talked about the idea that the bodyguard is just security. Uh, it's just somebody who's going to be there for you. I'll be your body. You can, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. Um, you can call me Al. Um, and I think what was so beautiful about that is that he, all of those verses begin with jokes and they're very like New York jokes as well. Like when you see them or when you hear them spoken or sung, you're like, oh yeah, of course it's a joke. Like you never really think, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's great. Oh man, yeah. I think I asked that question half as a joke, and then Anthony's just gone straight in and been like, actually, yeah. this is <laughs> yeah, the answer. On that. Like, very well-read guy, Anthony. <laughs> I'm also just quite impressed with the succinctness of your mum saying, "Oh, he means sadness," because I kind of, I don't, I don't know that I would have been that capable of giving kind of such a a good five-year-old appropriate but honest answer do you know what i mean so succinctly off the bat (laughs) yeah and and it is interesting because you kind of you're moved and you're compelled by those words and i guess the music of those words and the kind of the, the melodic i guess structure of how they're put together invokes a feeling and then the words are kind of exacerbated by the melodic notation that happens underneath the language and I think as a kid it's why it's so universal you know and I don't particularly I mean it's one of the, we can probably get onto it later but one of the things that I'm really into is is, is strangeness and, and systems of logic and ideas of, of ways of understanding things and, and the world for me is nonsensical it's non sequitur it's completely illogical and I think listening to jazz for me for example like I listen to Charlie Parker or Miles Davis or BB King or Coltrane mm. I don't know what they're doing because I'm not a jazz musician so I couldn't tell you what key they're in but I still I'm still enjoying it you know and mm. I think it's the idea that with poetry we put because it's a language based art form and we use language so much for clarity and actually for closure that the moment the windows stay open in a poem, people get a little bit kind of flustered and confused Mm -hmm. because it's like, 
you're not using language in the way that we've been told to use it. In other words, you extract meaning from language, which is how you kind of learn it at school. And when you go against that kind of principle, it creates a different, and you need to give people permission to go in and inhabit the poem, because if they can't, it's the same with music, but with music, we're told, just listen and make of it what you will. Whereas with language, we're told that a sentence means something very particular, you know? Yeah. Mm. It's interesting thinking about that in relation to, and we were going to ask you way later in the interview about heritage aesthetics, but like that word aesthetics, the when I read your work, I'm, th- I'm thinking about the, the way that you maybe have a line that runs on into the next one in a way that maybe doesn't make necessarily, you know, semantic sense, but does make a sense aesthetically in a different way. It's kind of yeah. a looser way to it. And I don't know. It's, yeah. it's interesting that you chose that word for the title of your book, your new one. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, a lot of, I mean, a lot of that comes from empire as well. Like the idea of control mm. and power and aesthetics and having something present or look or appear in a particular way. So, I mean, a lot of that project is about subverting the British imperial project in some form. It's about creating <clears throat> new systems of thought or tracking kind of diasporic thinking and the way in which the kind of maniacal, almost like neurotic diasporic self performs within the diaspora. And I, be- I became really fascinated in tracking kind of neurological synapses in the way in which our consciousness works, because consciousness doesn't have a pattern um, in the way that I've just jumped from four different subjects whilst talking to you. And my, I, I, I try to kind of mirror those leaps or that energy or that kind of restlessness is probably a better word in these poems. So the way in which I move in that book is very, and it was something that we worked on with Rachel because I'm quite a restless writer. Like I can't keep still inside the poem. I can't keep still inside my head or my body. I get restless inside it. And so I became really interested and this came out of therapy. So talking to a therapist and not being able to stay on one thing, but constantly moving and then bringing in academia or bringing in a reference or bringing in a quote as a way of deflecting from holding on to the emotionality of what we're talking about became a really interesting way of writing. And so I, I kind of tried to mirror that mode within this book. So when you read it, there's a lot of movement that like everything mm-hmm. is, and there's a lot of active verbs as well. And everything is kind of moving in a particular way to highlight that restlessness. But then working on it with Rachel, she kind of just said, like try to write some poems now that hold the idea and draw it out just to create some some range and contrast so not everything and so I did so there's some in there but that was a lot harder for me to hold the idea and just slowly unravel it Mm. I just wanted to keep moving on to something else Mm. and I thought that was really interesting kind of because you've got that sort of like you're saying that sort of diasporic thinking that sort of uh sort of unstructured thinking that quite freewheeling thinking alongside kind of actively engaging with colonial narratives of trying to categorize and you know Mm. apply logic to phenotypes to people to races to this is the category of people we can define people in this way sort of thing and trying to kind of yeah complicate that I thought was really interesting yeah and I think that was I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting you pick up on that because one of the, the key characteristics or what's noted throughout the history books that I read on when the British got to Cyprus in 1887 was that they didn't know who the Cypriots were. 
And I think them not knowing who we were has now fed into us not knowing who we are as well. And mm-hmm. I, I wanted to try and create that nexus to show the correlation be- and, and between that kind of ambi- who are they? Are they Greek? Are they Turkish? Are they Arabs? They're in the Middle East, but they look Arabic, but they don't talk Arabic. It's not quite Greek. It's not quite Turkish. Who are these people? They didn't know who we were. And I think it's... The irony isn't lost on me when I look to see how Cypriots think of themselves. They also don't know who they are. There's a huge identity crisis that has been kind of, it's the residue of the British imperial project. I mean, Cyprus got independence in 1960, but it's never been pre-colonial. So for an island that's never been pre-colonial, arguably, I would say that the uh, Mycenaeans who got there were also colonialists because there was already indigenous people there so the ancient greeks 2000 odd years ago who turned up were also so you could argue the island's never been pre-colonial and it's not pre-colonial and it's not post-colonial now because there's british army bases there there's like three different four different languages that are spoken two different flags six different currencies you know it's a mess the whole thing is very very complicated and i think i needed to have a poetry that complicated what it meant for this tiny little island that no one really knows much about because it just gets kind of subsumed into this notion of being Greek or Turkish, which is, you know, these are ideological kind of hangovers from the 1950s um, and really kind of drill down into what these notions mean and added the extra layer of complexity as being somebody who wasn't born or grew up in Cyprus, but in, you know, in London. So, yeah. Interesting. We've kind of we started the question of how did you get into poetry? Uh, yeah, no, I was going to interject with just about the number of tangents. Are you by any chance also a spicy brain? I say as someone with ADHD, like what between the mean? restlessness and. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I... Okay, excellent. I was I was recognizing a kindred. Sorry. Yeah, kindred. Yeah, yeah. I was I was diagnosed <laughs> with autism last year, so um, oh, uh, it's probably probably plays in the way in which I can't keep still with um with a lot of the i mean adhd and autism obviously aren't the same but i think that there is a lot of there's kind often of overlap, there's a lot of kind of uh overlaps exactly yeah yeah but um i'll try i'll try hard to, to stay on on the one <laughs> no thing. no it's, i can't remember what the quote is that about like creativity is ideas having fun or something i can't remember i feel like a i'm failing to remember the specifics of the quote but there is something about I, I genuinely think that brains that like smash about three different ideas into each into each other <laughs> naturally, like you are going to come up with more ideas. Like it is fertile ground. Sometimes shit for like you know yeah. tying up loose ends and finishing the project on time, but like many benefits as well. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, I think yeah, that's the mark no. of a good conversation that's flowing. So where should we go next? Exactly. Well, I thought maybe it'd be interesting to bring it back to that question of like, okay, so Paul Simon. You heard the quote, like, to move the conversation along further, like, what happened, what what was next after that for you, Anthony, do you think? I think, um, so, yeah, so so folk music and reggae played, like, huge parts. Like, they were quite instrumental in the early years, like, kind of, you know, pre-secondary school. And then I think when I got into secondary school, it became um, Um, Mm hip-hop. And, you know, I, I got really into, like, American 90s rap, gangster rap and Tupac and Ice Cube and Wu-Tang and all the rest of it. And and again, like seeing language contorted, seeing language used to kind of express, to comment, to 
to summarize, like there were loads of things that within hip hop that I found really powerful as a 12, 13 year old kid living in the suburbs of London. Um, there were things that I felt I could, I could relate to. And, and there was always a malaise. Like I, I was always very observant. I, you know, I started having little notebooks. That I'd write things in from before I even went to secondary school. Um, and I would always be looking at the world. But I think what was interesting in my, in my upbringing, I kind of write about this in How to Write It, is I was mm. never precocious. So, you know, you, you read a lot of books of, of people who now work in letters and they're writers and they're garlanded and they're revered and whatever else. And they all start with like, you know, I was in the top sets or I was, I went to a shit school, but I was, you know, very, I was a high achiever. I, I was crap. I was crap throughout most of my schooling life. And there was nothing. I mean, my dad sometimes says, you know, like, I'm surprised you did it because like it was this idea that some kids are like, yeah, we knew you'd get there. You always had it in you, but you just didn't have mm -hmm. the right kind of, you know, you weren't in the right setting. Whereas with me, I went to a very good school. I actually got into that school, not because of my academic merits, but because of my sporting abilities. Mm -hmm. I was uh, football and running were the two things that I was always really good at. Um, and so I'm interested in that. You know, I, I became really interested in the fact that my autodidacticism, I guess is what it is, is a result of curiosity, which goes back to your question. I'm always, I'm going to try and loop everything back so I don't end up <laughs> way out to sea on my own. Don't um, worry, it's all good. <laughs> um, and, and it was just having a curiosity, being able to like look at the world, pay attention to the world, how it works, and then have questions. Like there were loads mm. of questions that I didn't understand. Uh, I had no answers for. And I didn't grow up in a bookish household. My parents weren't intellectuals. Um, you know, they weren't, my dad was an accountant. My mum was a beautician. Um, and there wasn't really much, and everyone else in, you know, my uncle owns kebab shops and the other uncle worked in factories. I mean, we're, this is a working class immigrant family in all its kind of variants, but it, there was nowhere to go with that curiosity. But I think, what I do, what I am grateful for is that there was always space to discuss. Like my mm. house was always very loud. Everyone spoke at the same time. Um, the Cypriot dialect can sound quite harsh when you hear it. Like the non, to English, my English mates would come round. They'll be like, is your granddad, is he all right? Because he's like screaming <laughs> his face off. And I'm like, no, he's just asking for the salt. Like, he's, <laughs> he's, he's fine. Um, so yeah, I, I think a lot of... <laughs> a lot of these things would, um, would impact the way that I responded. And that ultimately led me to writing, you know, like writing things down, metabolizing what was going on in my brain, but also finding like a physical form to express or to capture the abstract, the abstraction of thought. And that's kind of what I felt a satisfaction from writing things down and then that led me into poetry and when with joel's thing you know slam ambassadors it was called the respect slam back then but my mum entered me into that so i started writing these little raps when i was about 12 and then by the time i hit 17 i'd written like i had mountains of pages and i used to write obsessively all the time mm -hmm. like just and it was crap but it was just the act of writing you know like i was yeah. not one of these arthur rambo kinds who was like writing you know, pilot surprise winning stuff at 12. Um, it was crap, but it was the fact that I had found an outlet and I was, you know, I was learning it. I was getting familiar with its kind of 
with its interiority and how you operate mm. within that. Um, and then that that mm-hmm. took me up to seventeen, and then my mum uh... entered me into this respect slam, um, and that ended up I ended up winning that, and that was the first time really. I mean, Joel was like one of the first people to actually say well done to me, and I remember mm. like when she rang up my mum that uh, that afternoon. And just said like he's he's written like the best poem here, um, and he's going to win the competition. And I, I'm my mum telling me, and I was I couldn't believe it. I didn't know what to do with praise. I'd never <laughs> experienced praise. You don't know what to do. I know what to do with negativity. <laughs> I know what to do with you know criticism, but I didn't know what to do with praise. And I just remember it spun me out. I, I didn't know where to go with it. What do you do? Do you be like? Do you smirk? Do you smile? Do you tell someone? Do you not tell someone? I just didn't know what to do with it. Hmm. What did you do? What did you decide on in the end? I just, it was a feeling really, like that feeling of, of warm, like it was a warm, like it almost softens your body inside when somebody says something nice or compliments you or you've achieved something that you value, you get this softness. And I remember just feeling quite peaceful and relaxed for like about a week. Every time I thought of it, <laughs> I felt like, oh, wow, I can, maybe I can, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can write this. I really like this. Like I really, it really means a lot to me. Um, mm-hmm. And I really think about like these words and the order of these words and why I've put them in this order and blah, 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 you know? Um, and it's that sense of achievement because, you know, my brother could write a poem and someone could say, well done, but because he doesn't value the thing in the way that I valued it, he doesn't, mm. he didn't care, you know, or he mm-hmm. plays the piano. I, I can't, he plays by ear. I can't do it. He can hear something and just play, the whole thing on a piano. I'm like, how, how do you do that? But I can't do that, but I still admire, but I don't I have no desire to learn to do that. If that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. Around the time that Joel Taylor had won the T.S. Eliot prize, I saw you wrote something about when you first entered the competition, which competition, the slam one. Yeah. That, that you will have had to audition on your own because you weren't coming via a school route. Yeah. So that I had to go. So I think it was from 14 to 18 was like the cat. That, that was the age range at the time, but it was mainly like they were going into schools and my auntie had seen a flyer at her. She was a dancer at, at the weekend arts college in Hampstead and someone had left a flyer and she'd seen it. And obviously they knew that I was writing these little raps and whatever. Um, <clears throat> and so she told my mum, and my mum said to me, have you got, have you seen this? And I read it and I saw this kid with a mic, like, and I was mm. like, you know, is, is he a rapper? Is he, a, is this a poet? I don't think poets are supposed to look like this, but fine. And then my mum was like, do you have anything on the theme of respect? And I was like, what, what do you mean the theme of respect? She goes, well, I don't know. It's just what it says on the flyer. Have you got a poem <laughs> about respect? And I said, no, not really. <laughs> but I said, I could write one. So she goes, all right, write one, and then I'll, I'll send it in for you. Because so I said, all right, fine. So it was something to do, you know. So mm. I wrote it, and then it was called Anthropos. And I remember it, it started with, um, they will kill me one day. I think I was a bit obsessed with Tupac as well, who was also obsessed <laughs> with dying. Um, yeah. And so my opening line was, they will kill me one day. And to God I pray, or something like this. Um yeah. And and also, like I, I had no, I had no training. What was interesting is that I had no formal training with poetry. It was all the ear. It was sound. Yeah. It was you know, it was spoken word essentially. But I, spoken word didn't exist to my mind in those days. Um, and so yeah, then we entered it. Went down to the poetry cafe 
with my mum. Joel wanted to hear me read it. And I just remember turning up there, like 17, absolutely shitting myself with this piece mm-hmm. of paper. Um, and my mum was sitting like, and Joel was like, go on, son, let's hear what you got. <laughs> and I was like, it felt like a boxing match because her energy yeah. was very much <laughs> like a boxer's energy. And I was just like, shit, um, all right, here you go. And then so I read it and then she was just like rocking back and forth and like clicking her fingers and blowing everywhere. And I was like, she's actually having a... <laughs> an experience <laughs> i've never seen this happen before <laughs> that's what you so, want uh, though right mm, like yeah, you want yeah. you want more poetry crowds to be more like those football crowds and, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. it's like and, and the thing crowds. is the more she went the more i went like you know i was mm-hmm. respond i was reacting to her, her 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 movements and then i finished the poem and then she was like stamping and i was like it was very exaggerated i was a kid and she was trying to yeah. instill that kind of but it it worked is what I'm trying to say, you know, like although it was performative and it was slightly over the top, it worked and it kind of mm-hmm. gave me that confidence that I needed to, to kind of go forward and, and, and basically face the rest of my life. Um, mm-hmm. And that really, I'm forever indebted to her, you know, no matter what she says about, you know, our, my kind of our relationship, I, that will always be something I'll take to the grave is the fact that she was and obviously she did it with thousands of other kids it was just the fact that my experience is my experience you know like I came from a very disparaging world um that constantly told me I was no good and mm-hmm. and then she changed that narrative and that started to shift the way that I thought of myself that was also very much like a, a a concerted effort to go out and find young people and bring them into poetry. Like that was the kind of idea of it. What impact has that had on on your career? Because now you are definitely a poet with a poetry career. You know, you're kind of you know doing it for a living. It's taking you all over the world. What impact did that have, and how did it set you up for that? Um, well, for ten years, I so I, I, at eighteen. When, after I won that competition, one of the prizes was that you get to read at a poetry night. <clears throat> and I rendered, and this was like outside of the kind of, you know, the kid gloves. Like you're with the big boys now. You went to a big night <laughs> and there were blokes there with beer bellies and pints mm. and, you know, laughter. And it was all that. And I was just like, went along and I read this poem and I bombed. It went absolutely, I felt really intimidated. I, there was, there were, everyone was like, you know, there was loads of blokes, white blokes with mm. just, I just felt out of my element. I didn't feel that I, this wasn't my world. I didn't know this world. And I, I bombed. Um, and then the, afterwards, the promoter said something to me that really kind of banged my confidence. And it just set me all the way back. And then I didn't write for 10 years. So I stopped mm. writing from Jesus. 18 to 28. I didn't write a single thing. And obviously, I look back on it now, and I think I definitely overreacted. But I was in such a volatile place, and I just started to build up some kind of some sense of self-esteem. And mm. this guy had said this thing, and he didn't mean anything by it. It was a very kind of flippant, tongue-in-cheek comment. Mm. It was innocuous, but to me, it was like, no, he's right. I am a piece of shit. I am crap. I can't do anything mm. properly. I might as well just take myself away. And that's what I did. So for 10 years, I just disappeared. And I can get like that still. Like I have to fight those impulses to just disappear. Um, because I still, I've never left that classroom. Like the mm. damage that the school experience did 
it's still always there. Like I always feel like I've got this point to prove or I need to write this better. I need to push more. I need to work harder. Like I need to drive. There's an obsession. The work ethic comes from being constantly dissatisfied with everything that you create. And after having a 10 year hiatus, what I realized was that I never, I couldn't stop thinking about poetry. I tried so many times. I tried to just turn, but in my head, there were it was there were things happening. I was seeing the world through this prism mm. of a poem. Like any little thing that was happening, I'd be like, that's a poem. That's a poem. That yeah. could be that's an interesting <laughs> word. What's that word about? Like it never left. And then I got made redundant in two thousand and nine and that's when I picked it up again. Um and I think coming into it and I mean I'm very obsessive as as a person. Like I have a very obsessive Personality, you know, I can't do anything in halves. Like if I go in, I go all the way in as I don't go in at all. Um, and that has kind of led, I guess, to what this, over the last 10 years, you know, all the things that I've been involved with and the things that I've helped to build and, and sustain have uh, are a result of one, that work ethic. Two, I think the damage of my secondary school experience. And and three, my, my love for, for poetry and, and the community. And that's what mm-hmm. kind of Joel, from a young age, back to your question, so we loop it back, is it's the idea that community is at the core. Like you don't yeah. work in a vacuum and there are people that, that will never have the opportunities. I mean, I was gifted in, and privileged in certain ways and I was, you know, unfortunate in other ways. However, there are people that are like way over there. If I can do, and this was kind of what I said to myself when I came back, I thought, you know, whatever you do, offset it with stuff for other people not in a kind of like you know spurious or i don't know um inauthentic way or like something to Mm. boast about online or to kind of you know get people oh isn't he good isn't he a nice little do-gooder it wasn't a charity cause you know it's not that it's you do stuff and then you let the thing just work like without spoken when holly pester came to do it um in february and i was there she was like oh so do you, are you involved? And I'm like, no, I set it up. She's like, what? I had no idea. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And she goes, is that why you emailed me? I said, yeah, man. Like, so, and that, that was good for me. That was great because I completely want to remove myself from these things and let them stand on their own, yeah. you know, and let them serve the purpose that they're there to serve. Yeah. I mean, outspoken um, for the benefit of our listeners, you know, Anthony's talking about not doing things by halves, going all in, outspoken. If if I'm getting this right, Anthony, and tell me if I'm if I'm underselling this, but it's both. It's a night. It's also a publishing house. It's also this series of awards. It's uh, become a big umbrella of different things, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean that was it, right? It was the idea that you start with. So my thinking with it was always to try and offer to try and cover all poetry bases. So hmm. where could you have like one one entity where you cover performance, prize culture, publishing and education hmm. all in one? And so it became this kind of idea of having the outspoken. I hate the word brand because it's not. It's really like it's it's a group of people like it's an entity unto itself that offers all these different opportunities. Um hmm. 
and that was it. it I, you know, um, and I get a lot of stick for it. I hear this, I get criticism. Um, I hear people say really nasty things about me and the way that I do things and the people that I work with. But you know, I have to just accept that that's part that comes with the territory. You know, um, and I, I, you know, not to stoop to those levels as as well. So I've tried my best, and I've you know, it's been a slog. It's not easy setting something up. It's even harder sustaining it over a decade and going forward, you know, with funding and not being not getting funding sometimes and having to reapply. And then, mm -hmm. you know, there's 12 of us that work on the project, all different personalities, different egos, different, you know, visions and having to manage and work together. It's not it's not easy at all. And we get paid peanuts to do it. So it's not like mm -hmm. I'm out here on my retirement money. Um <laughs> But you do it for the community, you know, like, and, and it, it goes back to that again. Like, the, sometimes I feel like jacking it all in and just being, I can just write. I don't need to hear all this crap from people. I can literally just write my poems, not be online and get on and live a very comfortable life. Like I can, and teach, hmm. I can do that. But then I think, but what about, what about those spaces for other people that are just starting, that, that need that, that will never, you'll be denying somebody a chance to get going. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. Are there any kind of future plans for Outspoken that you're able to tell us about at the minute? Um, well, yeah, I think you know, like we had, our, we had our big night in May at the, at the Royal Fe in the Royal Festival Hall. No, Q in the QEH. Sorry, um, Royal Festival Hall. Soon come um, hmm. in 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 the QEH, <laughs> and we sold seven hundred. And from what I was told that night, actually by Ted at the South Bank, was that was the biggest night in for the biggest attended night in British poetry since Allen Ginsberg played the Royal Albert Hall Fuck in the 60s. That's so, awesome. Like, it was mad. Like, he, uh, you don't, I mean, it's a regular poetry night that saw 700 yeah. people come and listen to, to poets. Like, it was, I don't know, it was, it, for me, it was huge. Like, it was like, mm -hmm. I never thought, and it's taken 10 years for that to happen, but, you know, I was super proud of, of the whole team and everyone who comes out every month to watch. So, yeah, I think next year our plan is to kind of have another big night, maybe have two big nights. Mm -hmm. um, but if we can do that, if we can get 700 Joe Public, don't forget, this isn't poets coming to listen mm -hmm. to poets. This is members of the public yeah. coming to listen to poets, which is the dream. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Like, Absolutely. So that's it. That's the plan to, to keep it going. <laughs> Amazing. Um, and you mentioned uh, they're kind of doing the education, doing the teaching part. Um, and we noticed, uh, we kind of wanted to ask you about this specifically. Um, next month, you're running a workshop specifically on long poems. And mm. you know, you've written long poems in the past. The title poem of After the Formalities is a great example of a longer poem. And we were just wondering if you could tell us a bit about what draws you towards longer poetry and what makes for a good longer piece, particularly written down. Yeah, spoilers. I put this question in because I wrote very short poems, and I was just really interested in what Anthony's got to say on it. <laughs> yeah, I think I think with the long poem, I'm really interested in time. Like time is at the kind of is the central tenet. I think for me, when you write a long a poem in long a long poem, and you know the first question is what constitutes a long poem. Like you can have a, a poem in its kind of ambition that becomes an epic because of the ground that it covers and in the space that it covers that ground in. Or you can have a poem that just goes on for like 15 pages. Um, I'm more interested in not the 15 page poem, but in a poem that maybe spans three, four pages, but 
it feels completely expansive on the inside. And how you do that is like something that I think about a lot. So, you know, Holly Pester's comic timing, I think is a really good example of a long poem, Carve Akbar's My Empire. Um, no, sorry, not My Empire, The Place, The Palace, sorry, is a really good example of a long poem. Um, that there's poems that just manage to kind of talk over and into and beyond their kind of, their, their, their constraint, like where they're limited to. And that is about time. So my thinking is that long poems are constantly negating. So you create an idea, that idea is then substituted or lost for another idea to take its place. It becomes supplanted by that and then it keeps moving forward. So something is lost, something is gained. Something is lost, something is gained. And it keeps mm. working in that way. And you build up momentum and you create an interiority, like a world through that, but without actually depicting time, which mm-hmm. in After the Formalities, in the poem After the Formalities, I became really interested in how do I show five, 600 years of like race, race thinking, mm. but without, but, but, but while also contrasting it to my experience and I thought by using these kind of like to demarcate the poem in this way, 1408, 1507, you, the reader feels they're moving, but the mm. counter to that would be the 10 line anecdotes that are responding that don't feel that they meet linear time, that they're working in a different kind of time. So you offset that through something else. And like in heritage aesthetics, there's three, what I regard as long poems, um, mm in that book that again are taking big ideas big big and not necessarily distilling them but trying to mm-hmm. keep that expanse but complicating and i think this is really where i've tried hard to to complicate the idea of what it means so some people always into you know simplify the idea and a poetry a, a poetry that works should be distilled and simplified and i i, mm. I don't agree i think that for me the best poems almost offer an alternative complication or they problematize and complicate more and hand that over to the reader and the reader then inherits that complication Hmm. which is heritage you know like heritage is the the kind of what's in the implication of heritage is inheritance and that's kind of Hmm. what i'm trying to do in that book is is hand over the complication to the reader yeah, I mean, in the title poem of the new book, Heritage Aesthetics, you've got this, um, it's, it's, it's quoted, this argument, isn't it, between uh, two writers who I'm, I'm forgetting, I'm forgetting who they are, uh, their names right now, um, you'll tell me, I'm sure. Um, and then you're, you're kind of punctuating the poem with extracts from their kind of conversation, aren't you? Yeah. which, which yeah, is yeah, constantly, and, and it's, that- it's complicated. Yeah, exactly. And that's between uh, Jiddu Krishnamurti and David Bone, who talk about in the 80s, they had this big like public discussion about the ending of time that kind Mm. of looks at quantum and things like that. So, you know, I thought that would be really interesting. I'd read that book years ago and I was and the thing is, when I write poems, I don't necessarily know what I'm doing in the the early stages. I'm just playing with with ideas. And I really like I like intertextual stuff. I like bringing in importing ideas from outside of the uh, outside of the poetry sphere if that makes sense Mm. like you know bringing in and like ashbury does it like ashbury works very much like a collage and i remember watching a basquiat documentary where he 
where his process it feels quite similar to mine in that he has a lot of kind of ephemera open and he's importing things from magazines and periodicals and you know academic journals he's bringing them mm. all into the paintings and i kind of like working in that way as well um bringing stuff that wouldn't necessarily fit or isn't supposed to be in a poem and and again I don't want it to feel shoehorned, but you try to kind of like smoothen it so you create a world. And these poems are very much about exploring time, um, mm. which is, is for me something that is very much associated to heritage um, and, and how time looks now and how time looks tomorrow and how time looked in the past. So, you know, the, the book's really preoccupied with past, present and future and, and, and how those things kind of move and look, but then having each poem act as a particular kind of personality. I'm really interested in, in having poems live and breathe as individuals. Like they're part of a world, but they are also their own little people. And, mm -hmm. and then I started to think, if this poem was a character or a person, how would it, you know, was it subdued? Is it contemplative? Is it horny? Is it quirky? Is it eccentric? Like, how would it look? And so you mm -hmm. give, you know, you create these little personalities. And then for me, that's how I kind of form the basis of the book was having these, I mean, there was 40 poems. We took a load out because they, either I'd said those, I'd said that stuff in a better way in previous or earlier poems, or they just didn't fit the sound yeah. of the book, like the kind of world. So we took them out. But yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's it's a very complex and, and some of it is, you know, ineffable. Like, I, I don't fully get how you do it. You just work off the subconscious. You you, mm. you look at something, you work off the gut, you work off intuition. Like, I, I, I'm trusting these kind of the more psychic realms with this book. I, I trust even more. Before, I was maybe suspicious of them, that they'd let the poetry down. But I allow the subconscious to kind of do its thing and use more associative logic um, in, in the poems and allow my kind of, you know, my, my jumpy ADHD brain to just go where it needs to go. And that's something there's just more space for in longer poems then. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the long poem is, you know, you need to sustain that energy. I think where hmm. a long poem fails, and when I do, you know, I work with a lot of people mentoring each month and what we talk about when they do write the long poem is one, they either run out of steam you know, halfway through, they're tired. Like yeah. the poem now feels tired. Or secondly, you run into like tautological kind of puddles where like you've already said this somewhere yeah, else in yeah. the poem. Like you're now repeating yourself because you've run out of ideas. So you need to kind of, you know, whack the typewriter back to the start and read from the beginning and see where else you need to go or where else can you go that you haven't gone yet. Interesting. So what else do you think you your readers can expect from the new book is there anything else that you want to particularly bring out of it to to tell our listeners about you know i, I don't i'm not i'm not really into prescribing ways of reading anymore i think when i was in spoken word though, there was a lot more of a kind of focus on you know how mm. i want you to think about this or what this poem is about or how i want mm. you to read it or how i don't for me how I experience the poetry in that book is my business. And okay. the moment I leave the book, the moment it goes, it's for somebody else to, you know, it's like a museum. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It is like a museum. You walk into an art gallery 
and everyone's having their own experience with that Matisse painting, you know, and I kind of feel that, that that's really where I'm at with it. I don't, I just want people to enjoy it. What they get from it is outside of my control. If they like it, it is outside of my control. Um, mm-hmm. I've had a great time writing it. I'm super proud. Um, mm-hmm. It's the most difficult thing I've ever put together. I've worked my absolute bollocks off <laughs> trying to get it to, to where it is. You know, I'm talking about over a thousand times. Fit five, yeah. m- five major drafts of this book, like actual five different iterations that I have. Mountains yeah. and mountains. It's just, it's insane. Like what I've, what I've put in. I've never worked this hard on anything in my life. Um, <laughs> but you know. How it's received, it's got nothing to do with me. I have, I can't do nothing about that. I just know that it's the book that I wanted to write and needed to write, and I've had a good time doing it. Nice. Mm. Cool. And I feel like it's the advantage of having something on page as well, whereas like on, you know, if you're on stage, you kind of do, if you're going to get that moment with Joel going, yes, you sort of need to be like, okay, this is, you need to get it a little bit more. Whereas yeah, yeah, with yeah. the book, there is more space for just like, yeah, whatever you think, enjoy. Yeah, and I think it goes back to what we said, you know, like when you're standing in front of an audience, I, I, don't, I don't personally believe that poetry, that this is a service industry. I, I don't think that we're, I'm not in service of the audience. I don't pander to the audience. Like, I don't really care for the audience, if I can say that without getting cancelled. Um, like, I, I, don't, I don't care for the, for the audience. Like, for me, it's about when I'm sitting down at that desk with those words and that notebook and the laptop, that's all I think about. I'm not thinking who's on the other end of the line. Mm. That happens way later on. And also, has, like I said, it's got nothing to do with me. I'm aware that somebody's on the other end. I'm not talking to myself. Who that person is, is irrelevant. I just know there's, I'm hoping someone will be on the other side. But again, with spoken word is it very much, it is very much audience centric. Like it caters to, it has a direct message that it wants to impart and it wants a response as that's the transaction, right? Like you give something and I get something back. Standing ovation, you've moved me to tears. I'm changing my whole way of life. Now I'm becoming a vegan, like whatever it might be. But that's the job, right? It kind of, it's embedded in, in that kind of proselytizing which is that's where its its roots are in so whereas with this stuff and that's not an elitist thing to say i don't think i think it's just acknowledging the kind of the features within the different modes of poetry and how those features play out to a, an mm. audience or a readership you talk in how, how to write it about getting an agent which is something that's still really quite rare for poets in the uk could you tell us a little bit about that yeah, I think agents are great, so long as you've got something <laughs> to give them. Um, a lot of people think that, um, you know, without an agent, you're no one. But, uh, I mean, there are good agents and there's not so good agents, um, mm. just like with anything in life. And I think agents will help you get will help get your manuscript in front of an editor's desk. Um, they will talk and help with regards to kind of if you get a corporate gig or a commission, they can help negotiate fees. They can chase up money for you. Um, they can negotiate a larger advance if, if you're a kind of a writer who appeals to commercial presses or, or whatever else, um, or the bigger publishing houses. So it all just really depends. I don't think it's, you know, it's not integral, but I think at the same time, if you have an agent, 
it does help. But like I say, you need to have something to give them. Like you need to have a manuscript or part of a manuscript or something that they can work with um, mm. to start shopping around. Otherwise, you know, it doesn't really... I mean, I've had an agent since 2013 and she, Claudia is amazing. Whenever I've got something, she's fully there for it. Send it to me. She tells me what she needs from my end. And then the book starts, the manuscript starts doing its round. But what what was actually sometimes a little bit funky is that hmm. you you might be shopping around work that isn't quite fully formed. And in which case a publisher hmm. is reading a manuscript that isn't fully ready yet. And then they obviously decline the manuscript because it's not fully ready. And then you shot, you work it for another year and then it goes, and then it's, then it's a different book. So like my, I guess what I'm trying to say is don't be in a rush to get stuff uh, seen by publishers because um, yeah, you've got all the time in the world for that. The most important thing is that the work is the best thing that it can be. Everything else is just noise really. Um, hmm. It's just, it's just white noise. I just think that the work has to be the most, you have to be about the work. It has to be the most important thing. Everything else is secondary to that. Interesting. That probably leads us on to what we always kind of, well, we're going to ask you in a minute to do us another poem if you'd like to, but we always try and kind of wrap up our interviews with asking our guests if they have a piece of writing advice or a prompt um, for our listeners to be thinking about um, for the future. Um, yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's it's the advice that I tell myself is just, you know, stay, stay with the world. Stay, stay with it. Like, pay attention to its rhythms, to its ebbs and flows, to its kind of malaise, to its joy. Like, you know, if it's one single, if it's a heartbeat, you constantly got your hand on the chest of the world. And, you know, I think for me, knowing how to turn off and how to turn on is key to sustaining yourself as a writer and being able to kind of separate the chaff from the wheat you know knowing mm -hmm. what to pay attention to and knowing what to ignore and what to kind of pay little mind to i mean i've you know i've been through a whole load of things over the last decade and i've had to learn resilience and you know mm -hmm. you learn how to deal with things that sometimes aren't very nice and that are very horrible and not everyone in this business is nice and not everyone is philanthropic and benign and caring and you know they're not like some people are careerists and they don't want to see you do good things or be good at anything really mm -hmm. so it's being able to kind of know how to deal with those individuals how to step back and keep them in a certain place and i kind of feel that that for me is Again, I'm talking about sustaining yourself. You can have a moment as a writer, but that doesn't mean it's guaranteed for the whole of your mm. life. I don't know if I'll be doing this for the whole of my life, but mm. all I've had to learn is how you sustain yourself through these kind of ways of paying attention and then deciding what to let go. Cool. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Anthony. Would you like to play yourself out with a poem? Um, yeah, let's do... Uh, what shall I do? Let's do... Do one of these blocky ones. Oh, yeah, for those who demand evidence. It's on page 77 for anyone following along. <laughs> no one's following well, along. One of those read-along books and cassette versions. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah. I, like, I like saying that because the book doesn't actually exist yet. It'll come yeah. to play. <laughs>
in about three what weeks. Happens, what week. happens if it if it doesn't end up on page seventy-seven for whatever reason? I don't know. We... Fuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All our listeners will be writing in. We'll issue a correction. It's, actually... it's fine. Yeah, yeah. It's actually page 67. 77, or maybe it isn't. I don't know. I'm looking on the PDF. It says 77 of 104, so who knows. Um, For those who demand evidence, what I wouldn't give to turn silent today, to lead the front line of language towards the cliff, dropping my sad mornings beside some gentle accident. It's my friends I'm thinking of, dead inside their faultless bodies, offering up ground. I'll donate a modicum of hard cash to the approaching circus. Two fatigued elephants carting heirlooms, rebranding this new age vacuum-packed consciousness. I wish I could play an instrument on days like today, a stoned pianist with poor posture, forfeiting moral hands for the freedom of a chord. I swear to be part of anything that sees me. I can't stress this enough. A famous past stole our homes. My family survived empire, a violence to my father's head. I was only a boy then, with squeaky clean shoes, his pants all sullied. Now I'm paying institutions to read up on what was originally mine. Ripping body parts off eugenicists, bigots preserved in specimen jars. England, I've spent so long inside your history. It's like there will never be another way round this black torch held between your fangs, clapping at the end of an American movie. How do we stop? Let love move us naturally, dodge another set knee, the weight of our dead. One last plea, what I wouldn't give to turn silent today. Before statistics catch a siren, turn into a baton, swinging meat, slave roads shimmying under brute force, the second coming down above his temple, her pelvis cracking law into order, forced to beg a badge, says what it wants. My friends lost to daylight appearances, a platoon of cameras, my country, your country, rolling like jackals, thick with a sickness for blood, blonde, blue, white. This month's book is All the Men I Never Married by Kim Moore, which was chosen by Rebecca. Rebecca, why did you choose this book? This one, I have no more sophisticated reason than I bought it and I read it and I loved it and I wanted to talk about it because it's good. It's good book. I like. So that was our book club mini episode, everybody. <laughs> I mean, just it's good, does good words. Strong. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, the longer the longer story, if you want the full, I went to Verve Poetry Festival back in February and Kim Moore was performing. And I think I'd heard of the book before as well. Like a couple of people had mm-hmm. mentioned it as she was reading from it. And I was like, yes. And it was part of the, I did buy like a massive stack of poetry books. I'm still working my way through and it's great. And I read it and I loved it. And when we were trying to work out what we were going to do, I was like, I have a suggestion. Um, uh-huh. Also, it may, maybe ties in with our discussion about poems at weddings, given the title is All the Men I Never Married. So that's a very, That was a taster for our book club nice. mini episode, which will be out later this month, wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time for the notice bill, where we spotlight some opportunities to look out for, where you can either perform your work or submit it for publication, and also just stuff we think is cool. Okay. So, Laurie, what have you got? So we've got a few things this month. Firstly, I've got a gig to plug, which is Bad Betty Live. Our friends over at Bad Betty Press are now running monthly, I think they are, Yay. gigs over at St. John's Hoxton. The next one is Thursday, 8th of September, and it's at 6.30pm. It's a good lineup. We've got Fiona Benson, 
got Candice Siobhan Walker, Shanae Nessam James, Helen Bowell, and Tom Bland uh, with music as well from Tremendous. You can find out more on Bad Betty's website if you just search for Bad Betty. The Moth Nature Writing Prize 2022 is currently open for submissions. It aims to encourage and celebrate the art of nature writing. It's a prize which is awarded annually to an unpublished piece of prose or poetry which combines exceptional literary merit with an exploration of the writer's relationship with the natural world. And it's open to anybody over the age of 16 as long as the work is original and previously unpublished. I think this year it's going to be judged by Max Porter who wrote Grief is the Thing with Feathers as well as Lanny. And the winner receives a thousand euros which is pretty good and also apparently an opportunity that involves a week at circle of miss in france i don't actually know what that is but it sounds exciting and it's in france mm. so it must be good you can find out details over at themothmagazine.com and then finally for me for this month the troubadour international poetry prize is currently open for submissions it's open until 26th of september 2022 with the first prize of two thousand pounds second prize of a thousand pounds which is still pretty damn good and a third prize of 500 pounds which is also great and there is a prize night celebration on monday the 5th of of december but submissions for it end on the 26th of september and the judges are victoria Kenefick and Joshua Bennett. All the rules and all of the extra pieces of information that you would be looking for over at this website, which is coffeehousepoetry.org stroke prizes. It does look like there is a fee to which is five pounds or six euro or seven dollars, and you would need to submit there. There's all the details over on that website that I just mentioned. Rebecca, what have you got for us? So first up, I've got Gutter Magazine. So they are a magazine of new Scottish and international writing. So they're Mm. dedicated to creating a space for poetry and prose in Scotland and beyond, which I rather love because that was very much our uh, early tagline for Dead Darlings was London and beyond. So they look for work. What what qualifies as and beyond from Scotland? Anywhere not Scotland, I believe. All of the above. So they look for work that challenges reimagines or undermines the status quo pushes boundaries at the form of function that is striking and beautiful so effectively they're not looking for anything on a particular subject they're open to essays on any subject as well and yeah poetry can be up to 120 lines which is quite generous as previously discussed pretty long sort of lengths of poems so Mm -hmm. and you could submit up to five poems and pro submissions are up to three thousand words the deadline for that or for the next issue they kind of run sort of issues very very regularly submissions for the next issue are open until the 15th of september if you go to gutter mag so g-u-t-t-e-r mag.co.uk forward slash submit and you can find out all the information there um so listeners i had another one for you but i realized as i was reading it that it was actually in august so it's no use to you because it'll be september by the time you hear this so i'm just going to move on to my last one which was to say just some general poetry good news and a bit of a plug mm-hmm. so rick dove has been appointed as basically mm. a, a tutor for arvon oh lovely yeah so arvon are these amazing like poetry retreats i've never been on one but loads of people like have and they rate them as being these kind of life-changing experiences you go for a few days in the middle of nowhere you know if you can't get hold of a poet for a few days turns out it's probably because they're in arvon and there's no signal for an arvon retreat and yeah rick's going to be one of the instructors there which is very cool so rick was the uk slam champion for a bit and Mm -hmm. he is a previous guest on the podcast and we love him we love his work we stand we love this decision from arvon so (laughs) yeah that was my little plug Hannah, what have you got for us? 
So, I have spotted something which is opening September 1st. I'm not 100% sure when it closes, but I believe it may be the first year of there is such a thing as the Disabled Poets Prize, which is looking for mm. poems from disabled and deaf writers. There's even a category for in BSL, which is mm -hmm. very exciting because mm. obviously British Sign Language is a completely different language, different structures. Watching BSL poetry, by the way, is great. Oh my God. Like, Beautiful. If you've ever seen it, it, BSL poetry, it's fantastic. Yep. Yep. So that, you can find out all the details about that at disabledpoetsprize.org.uk. And I will be having a look and scanning my brain for if I have any ADHD or fatigue-based things to, <laughs> to chuck their way. I also wanted to give a shout out to two different book groups which have do a really good job of collating information and opportunities. One is the Women Poets Network, which, as far as I can tell, is run by Chirsten Luck. Lutkins, who is the apples and snakes person for the Northeast. So that is Facebook groups and just look for Women Poets Network. If you identify as a woman, go check them out and see what different opportunities they've got. Because actually, that's how I found out about the Table Poets Prize is, yeah, Chesson does a very good job of here is the this month's list of opportunities. And there are often some really good ones. And the other thing is a Poetry Plus Events Online, which is poetry and then spelt out plus because you can't do the symbol in the URL. Events Online, which I think I've mentioned before, but it is just an awesome resource. Bron McIntyre, who is a excellent poet based in, I think, Nottingham, is collating a list of online opportunities, which as 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 events open up, there are still a lot of people who, for various reasons can't physically get to stuff also if you just want to check out i want to see what they're doing in bristol this week and and so just like the fact that there is someone collating and pulling together the many many threads is excellent and yeah i mean to be clear we used to try out. and do that on this podcast Oop, and muted. it was a fucking ball ache that's why we don't fucking do it anymore <laughs> extremely fair yeah. great cool. so do we have anything we want to plug so you can find me uh as Hannah Chutzpah, C-H-U-T-Z-P-A-H, uh, on all the platforms. Uh, Facebook, I'm forward slash Hannah Chutzpah Poet for the page. Um, I also am the host of Insight, which is a queer spoken word night. We are now going for the term cabaret. And I have, as of like a few days ago, set up separate Twitter and Instagram accounts for it. There was already a Facebook page. But if you look for Insight Cabaret on Instagram or Twitter, then, then you can see when our free online monthly um queer nights are happening and see we've always got some excellent open mic like people like rick dove slam champion drop in just for kicks on the open mic and um we always, we have a booked feature and and it's a warm friendly cozy space straight allies are extremely welcome in the audience if you want to come listen to some queer excellence that's all good but the open mic slots are reserved for us benders um and yeah if you go check out insight cabaret look us up Laurie? Yep, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Laurie Eves Poet, which is L-A-U-R-I-E-E-A-V-E-S Poet, or on Twitter at Mr. Leaves, which is M-R-L-E-A-V-E-S. My book Biceps is out on Burning Eye Books or in Brick Red Cassette form on Buried Vinyl. And you can pick up both versions from my website, which is my name, laurieeves.com. Um, and you can also stream the audio version wherever you stream audio. I'm expecting to actually have a few copies of Biceps um, that are going to be a bit cheaper shortly. So if you're interested in any of those, um, check out 
my website. Um, also, I run or I co-run uh, Genesis Slam now. Um, sort of, uh, sem- semi-officially. Uh, I'm now co-running Genesis Slam, which is on at the Genesis Cinema in Stepney Green in London on the first Thursday of every month, unless you hear differently. You can find out more about that by searching for Genesis Poetry Slam. And it is the absolute nicest slam in London. It is. It is. It's lovely. It is. Just a nice vibe. Rebecca, anything you want to plug? Uh, As ever, you can find me on Facebook as Rebecca Cooney-Poet, on uh, Twitter and TikTok as Rebecca K. Cooney, uh, Instagram is at any name but Becky and my website is rebeccakcooney.wordpress.com uh, you can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram as at deaddarlingspod Facebook as deaddarlingspodcast and you can email us at deaddarlingspodcast at gmail.com if you've liked what you heard please remember to rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and help us spread the word particularly Apple Podcasts it really does make a difference and help people find us um, before we head off, I just want to say thank you to Anthony and Aksaguru for joining us. Uh, thank you to my co-hosts, Laurie and Hannah, to Texas Radio for our theme music, and as ever, to you guys for listening. We've missed you. We have missed you. It's good to be back. I think we should say goodbye. Yep. Bye. 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 Bye.